Today, um, we're going to hear from Jesus himself as he casts the same vision of flourishing, but in his own words. So look with me at Matthew chapter 7. We're going to pick it up in verse 24. We might be all over the place with this. Um, But look how Jesus concludes his great um, manifesto, his famous Sermon on the Mount. This is his vision of flourishing. He's casting a vision of what he wants his followers to be. Here it is. Everyone, everyone then, who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching because he taught He was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, would you please, would you please guide us through this? I I would love to see your vision of what it looks like to flourish. And we come before your scripture with great respect honor, fear, and trembling, we submit ourselves to what your spirit would say through the written word and what your spirit would say to our own hearts. We're not here just to learn facts or, or to um, one-dimensionally uh, affect our intellect, but Lord, we're asking that you would charge our entire person that there'd be a full-bodied response to you as we listen to what you say. Give us ears to hear, minds to understand, hearts to realize. Please. Please, Lord. We're here for you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. What we have here is Jesus' vision of a flourishing human being. Someone who can withstand the most destructive storms in life. So, let's flesh it out a little bit. Let's look at what flourishing means in this metaphor. In this metaphor, Jesus relates the, um, the purpose of mankind to that of building a house. A home, think of your home. Think of where you live. A home is a space that's built with a really intentional and special purposes in mind. The idea of a home is much bigger than a roof over your head and walls to shield yourself from the elements. That's just the starting point for some deeper metaphors and some deeper realities. A home, your home, is a space that's meant to house, protect, make, sustain, and grow more life. That's what the home is for. It's the place where real life happens. It's a space that can handle and hold all the personalities and souls that are within that home. That's the idea. There is, 
Think of, think of what happens inside of a home. I, I live in Wallingford. I walk through, I go on walks at night and I walk through houses and I see these beautiful lights and sometimes I hear laughter and joy coming on from inside. And I just imagine what goes on within a home. There's hysterical joy and laughter within the walls of a home. You think of memories in your own home, goofy moments. People feel comfortable to do things in their home that they would never do in public, right? Absolutely. There are, there are um, well, secret tears are shed within the walls of your home? Do you think, can you think of any of those moments? Where no one else is around and you just feel safe to break down? Um, honest and vulnerable conversations happen within your home. Dreams might be shared in your home. Maybe there's people safe enough in your home that you can dare to dream with sometimes. Um, lovemaking happens within a home. Creativity happens within a home. The home is a sacred place. It's a sacred place where life happens. And Jesus is saying that humans are sacred and like homes, humans are to live in such a way as to nurture, protect, make, sustain, and grow more thriving and more life for ourselves and for others. But look how refreshing this is. Look what flourishing does not mean. It doesn't mean a life of ease. I mean, you have to appreciate the realism from Jesus here. The last two weeks, we've been painting a really, a fairly rosy picture of what it means to flourish, almost uncomfortably so. Almost like there's some elephants in the room that we haven't been talking about, like suffering, hurt, those types of things. So Jesus doesn't have his head in the sand here. He doesn't say, if the rain falls, or if the floods come, or if the winds blow and beat on that house. No, he says, when the rain falls, when the floods come, when the winds blow and beat on that house. It's gotta be refreshing for us, I think, into this point of our series on flourishing. Jesus gets it. He gets real life. He knows real life. Real life is good. That's Genesis 1 and 2 stuff. Real life is good, right? It goes, we talked about this, it goes good and then image bearers show up and it's very good. An egg, an egg is good. Then an image bearer comes and sprinkles, uh, fries it, sprinkles some cheese on it, puts some good stuff in it, folds it over, puts some chives over the top and it's an omelet and that is very good, right? We've talked about all of that. But then comes Genesis 3. And from that point on, life is good, but also life is also really hard. This is where the rubber hits the road for us. Real life is also really broken. Real life and the pain that's in it is also relentless, isn't it? It's relentless. Real life is not fair. It's not fair. Real life kills people, takes things from us. Real life will push you, stretch you, hurt you, 
Or to use Jesus' words in our uh, passage, will beat on you. They beat on the house. And it doesn't care how tired you are or how weak you are or how strong you are. It doesn't care how young or how old you are. If you've lived a full life or if you've got your whole life still in front of you, real life has storms in it. And they will beat on you. And according to Jesus, if you're not built right, you will fall. And your fall will be great. So, how's that for the words of Jesus? There we go. And in some ways, although this is um, heavy stuff, it's got to be refreshing after our last, I mean, our last two series have been, you know, we're going to flourish and you have power and use it, you know, woo, 2023. But what we're not saying is that 2023 or 2024 or whatever is going to be a breeze. You know, let the good times roll. We're going to leave the misery of 2021 and 22 behind us and, mo- and we're going to move to prosperity and riches. That's, that's not, that's not, the, me- that's not the, the picture that this metaphor paints. This picture of flourishing is a picture of endurance and triumph in the midst of the adversity that's surely going to come and beat on your house. That's how Jesus pictures flourishing. It's a triumph in the midst of suffering. It's a triumph in the midst of adversity. He's not so idealistic that he's out of touch. And for me, that's, that's, that means I can trust Jesus. When someone is so idealistic that their head's in the sand, I immediately, I don't know about you, but I immediately shut down from that person. I think you don't get it. I don't, you know, you don't, and you certainly don't get me and the complexities that I go through. This is what drew me to Jesus as a young person was that he was so refreshingly, he so refreshingly understood the grittiness of life. But he says, the human being that that I'm making will stand, will be able to stand. Don't we want that? Don't we need that for what's coming? Don't we want that and don't we need that? How will we endure? How? Okay, so... Well, this is where um, we can see and appreciate Jesus' incredible insight into human nature. He relates human life to a house and a house that has two dimensions. There is the seen part of the house and then there is the unseen part of the house that's underneath. The seen is, well, the aspects of human life that are visible. What you can see, what you can observe. The behaviors the image, the social roles that we play, the rules that we follow in a society, the language we use, you know, the, the, prop, the, the propriety, the, the, all of those, those things, the etiquette. But Jesus says that the integrity of the structure, the real strength of a life will rise or fall depending on the part of the house that is not seen, that is unseen. That would be its foundation or what it's, what it's built on. Some lives are built on sand and they will fall. Others, his followers' lives, are built on a rock and they're the ones that'll be able to handle it. They're the ones that'll be able to endure. 
Life is real. You know, um, I've been in ministry for a long time, not as long as some, but longer than others. And man, um, people have died. I have buried kids. I've seen people that I've ministered to grow up and get married and divorce. I've visited people in prison. I've also seen, um, I've also been able to be there at a hospital when a new baby is born from kids that came up through my youth group. The joy of that, some of you are here now. (laughs) Life is a mixed bag, isn't it? And not only do the storms of life come, but when they come, they reveal what kind of they reveal what the house is really built on. So there's this really interesting element here in the Bible when it comes to life. Not only is it stormy, and not only is it something that we need to withstand, but it's also something. The storms of life are something that also reveal what the house is really built on. In other words, the idea is you don't really know what your house is really built on until a storm comes. Now, this might seem ridiculous to us modern people, but in a time where they didn't have, you know, digging, big digger, uh, you know, construction vehicles or cement mixers, um, Middle Eastern builders had to dig down deep by hand through soil and clay until they found bedrock. They found, they had to go looking for it. They couldn't import it. They had to find it. And they had to secure. And in the, in the summertime in the Middle East, the clay was really hard and compact and convincingly hard so that the lazy worker might convince themselves that it was stable enough to build on. This will work. Look how hard this is. But when the winter rains would come and the soil was soaked, only those that had kept digging until they found a truly firm foundation, only those could truly weather the storm. So the storms revealed what the houses were truly built on. There was a revelation that happened. Until storms arrive, it's hard to know what our lives are built on. They're, for the Christian, they're useful. Not in a, If we can get rid of the shameful way, the followers of Jesus, when we hit a storm, things bubble up to the surface that maybe we had not known were there before, And we can go, oh, okay, that part of my foundation needs shored up. So to Jesus and the entire Bible, as we're going to see, all of human life, including what is seen, is really determined by something deeper and something that's unseen. That is what life is truly built on. You see the complexity. Jesus' view of human nature is really beautiful and really complex. All of human life, and listen, including the things that are seen, behaviors, things you say, all of those things are determined by something going on that's not seen. What we see in each other here is really all, almost all, well, maybe all of it is the outside stuff. We interact and we kind of bump off of each other all day and throughout the day and we say things like, oh, she's nice. Or maybe we say, oh, he's a jerk. Or um, he's stingy. Or she's really generous. Right? We have those, or gosh, what's gotten in him today? He's super grumpy. Or man, she's just always this or always that. Oh, I love their marriage. Their marriage, always, they're just such a great couple. Or man, how do they make it from day to day? 
And on and on it goes. What we're seeing, what we see of each other is really the outside stuff. But what we, what we, um, but what we just have really no clue about, what we don't know much about are all of the deep level stories and motivations and values that are underneath each one of you. The, thing, the ways that you were formed, the story of your family, perhaps, how you grew up, the story of your most formative memories, the circumstances that you have, of your growing up, those formative times that are sacred just to you, that shaped you in the way that you would go, the experiences that maybe you experienced when you came up through adulthood, some moments and then there's the way the culture shapes us and forms us and shapes what we, the things that we love. Culture shapes the things that we love and shapes the things that we value the most, the things that we fear and the things that we hate. These are all the real things that make up who you are. This is what your house is built on, the things that we're all built on. These are the things that drive us to do what we do. These are the things that are really motivating the things that you say, the way that you interact, the way it actually explains every part of your life. And Jesus understands this. Jesus knows this. He gets this about humanity. He gets it very, very deeply. So we have to ask ourselves here, in order to flourish, Jesus is saying very deeply here, he's saying you need to have a new foundation there needs to be bedrock, because if you don't have this certain kind of foundation, great will be your fall. You won't be able to handle the storms that come and beat on your life, that are going to edge away at you. You're not tough enough to handle it without it. So what is this rock, the inner bedrock that will ensure our, li our lives are built on, strong enough to handle life? Well, take a look at verse 24 of chapter 7. This is the crowd's response to Jesus' words. It says, everyone then who hears, or excuse me, this is the beginning. Um, Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine um, and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. So what is the rock in this verse? Can you guys see it? Verse 24, therefore everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. What are, what's the rock in that? I, you, 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 got, you can't whisper. You got to let, you got to. Jesus, okay, but well, is that what he says? Does he say everyone who hears the words of mine? So Jesus' words. So right here, us Christians go, mmm, mmm, that's so good. The word of God. Mmm, I love where this is going, Pastor Mike build our lives on the, the word. And doesn't it just feel so fluffy and good? But here's the thing. <laughs> He's specifically talking about not just the words um, in a general sense. What is he talking about? He's talking about specifically the words that he just uttered over the last three chapters. He's talking about, and in my mind, this gets ominous at this point, the Sermon on the Mount. There is no, if there is a passage in the Bible that honestly I, I get a little intimidated 
in getting into, it is this right here. I'm, I, you know, Leviticus, uh, Judges, you know, all of the war and things like that, you know, yeah, but the words of Jesus, I'm even, I'm not even kidding, I'm feeling it right now. I'm feeling like I gotta be careful here. Um, the Sermon on the Mount, if you're reading it right, is a very, very uncomfortable sermon. In fact, in my opinion, I don't think there's ever been a more penetrating speech of any kind that is words laying so bare and naked the human soul and psyche in the history of words that have been recorded as the Sermon on the Mount. If I was to let my raw thoughts come out, the first thing I think of is I don't like it. I don't like it. Um, let me read you a quote from a Jewish rabbi about the Sermon on the Mount that I thought was really funny. Uh, he says, the history of Christianity is essentially a history of Christians trying to evade the Sermon on the Mount <laughs> and avoid living according to its plain meaning. And I think that's so true. Or at least it's, gosh, if you truly want to know what Jesus is expecting when he invites the world to follow him, there's no better place to start and no more uh, intimidating place to start than the Sermon on the Mount. So this is your, be warned here. It's very challenging and extremely uncomfortable. But Jesus says, we've got to pay, he says, if you're going to make it, if you're going to flourish, because the storms are going to beat on you, the bedrock you're looking for here is the words I just, I just said this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, and let me work from that metaphor backwards, the Sermon on the Mount is basically Jesus' way of exposing the deep, deep, foundational, under-the-house things in his followers. That's what it is. If I was to sum it up, why do I not like it so much? Let me, say, let me read it again. The Sermon on the Mount is basically Jesus' way of exposing the deep, deep things under the surface, the foundational stuff that's operating you. Yeah, uh, my back went out yesterday. I called Richard and I went over to his house and, and doggone it, Richard took his finger and he jabbed it so far into my, into my, into my back, I felt his finger coming out the front. It hurts so good. But there was a moment on that table that I thought, I shouldn't have come. I should have just, I, I'm okay with taking half breaths all day. You know, it's fine compared to this. Fire in my brain. I mean, it was, that's what this sermon feels like to me. I thought that when I went home after that to study this, I felt that spiritually as I started reading over, well, the first place to start is to read the Sermon on the Mount. So I went home and I read the Sermon on the Mount and I just started feeling it. I just was like, ay, 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 I just, Jesus puts his followers in a position where you can never truly be comfortable around Jesus Christ. These are my, this is what I wrote down as I was reading it yesterday. In fact, I would say the moment Jesus stops bothering you is the moment you know you've stopped listening. I've met lots of people, especially in Seattle, that, will, that I will talk to and they will say to me, I'm not a religious person, 
I'm not, you know, and I don't like Christianity, but you know, I love the words of Jesus. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a red letter Christian. All the words of Jesus, that's what I believe in. And immediately I know that they have not read the words of Jesus. Immediately I know they have not read the words of Jesus. Let me show you. Um, Look at the way the crowd responds at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. This is verse 28, look it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. The, the Greek word translated there, astonished, literally means out of mind. They were, their minds were blown by the Sermon on the Mount. That was the crowd's overall feel that day. That was the energy going on after he spoke. It was mind-blowing when they heard him say this. It was revolutionary. It means it bothered them and impressed them at the same time. And that's exactly right. If you go and read it, that is what you will feel. You will feel this sense of, I know he's right. Like, it's true, but it bothers me. They didn't have a category for the kind of things it was stirring up inside of them. Again, I'm not even kidding. Right now, it's bothering me. In this moment, I'm bothered. I'm very bothered right now. Why? What specifically blew their minds? Can you guys tell me? Can you read it in the verse? What specifically blew their minds? Uh, Can you put the verse up there, teen? It says right there, because what? His authority has something to, yes, right. It has something to do with his authority. In Jesus' day, the, he, um, um, the Hebrew word, well, let me just say this. It had something to do with his, because the scribes there are teachers of the law. It says right there, not as they're teachers of the law. The word law in Hebrew is the word Torah. Um, and it referred to the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament. Even though the first five books of the Bible are our narrative in their literary genre. It's a story, but they still called it the law. Um, so the Torah, the law, is a story, but housed within the law, the Torah, are um, legal codes, 613 laws, you could call them, or really um, uh, covenantal ratifications of a covenant relationship that Yahweh had with his people. Now, in Jesus' day, you need to understand, this was considered the definitive word from God to his people on how they were to live, flourish, in relationship to God and how they were to be in community with one another. This guided everything. Living the Torah was the way to be a human. Okay? That's what you need to understand. And then Jesus shows up <clears throat> and he starts saying things like, you know the Torah says this. Well, I say this. And no one had done that kind of thing. No one had done that kind of thing. You know how the Torah says to do this. Well, I say to do this. It was this authority piece. He had the audacity and the authority to say, yeah, I know what the Torah says, but let me, I'm going to say this. And it rattled the world. It just shook them up. 
That's the authority piece that's blowing people's minds throughout this sermon. Now, what was Jesus doing? Was he saying that the law is now obsolete and it's time to do what he said? Is he saying, hey, yeah, Moses, great. Uh, you know, he's expired like milk. I'm the new thing. Do what I say now. Well, do, did I put Matthew 5, 17 up there on the screen? Yes, there it is. Um, look what Jesus says. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until it is accomplished. I think I put NIV up there for you guys. Uh, Can you go back one? Let's see. Oh, yeah, I love the way they put it. Until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. You go to the next one. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So again, the law is the word Torah, and the prophets there in the beginning, you can go back one for me, teen. The the word prophets is basically Jewish shorthand for the entire Hebrew Bible. In other words, this is what we Christians would call this the Old Testament. Okay, so read the last line there again. He's saying the quality, well, actually, um, go back one more. I'm looking for, oh, no, that's right, that's right, you're right. Gosh, think about what he's saying here. (laughs) I'm feeling it again. I wrote it in my own way. The quality of your relationships with others and the integrity in which you follow God has got to exceed the most religious people that you can possibly think of or there's no way you're getting into heaven. How are we doing, guys? The integrity by which you follow God and the way in which you relate to to others has got to exceed the most religious, devoted person that you can think of or there's no way you can enter the kingdom of heaven. I mean, it's like touching a hot iron right there. You're like, yeah, if you're honest. I mean, this is Jesus. So when Jesus is walking around, according to this, saying, you know how the Torah says this, but I say this. Well, according to this, what he's not saying, emphatically not saying, is that the Old Testament is done, and I'm now the new, and you need to discard it. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that the Old Testament no longer applies and is expired, and now just do what he says. That is not, I mean, according to this, do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. That's not what he's doing. He's not saying to stop listening to the Torah, but what is he saying? Can you guys see it? What does he come to do? Fulfill. He's come to fulfill them. Well, what in the world does that mean? That's what we need to know. What does it mean? What does it, it mean? And I'll tell you this. It means much, much, much more than like predictive prophecy. It's much deeper than that. Jesus is looking at the Torah, and this is what you need to, this is in the mind of Jesus, 
Jesus is looking at the Torah as the story that he sees himself a part of. Or let me, let me back up and say it better. This is the, actually, in Jesus' mind, this is the story that he sees himself as the culmination of. The Torah is the story that, he see, that he's the culmination of. It's all heading to him. This is the Old Testament story or the story of his people. And specifically, it starts when, he, when God rescued the nation of Israel out of Egypt. You guys remember that? Um, that became the template of salvation in the Old Testament. How Yahweh saves his people was repeated through the prophets and related back to the Exodus events. So they used it not only as an event in the past, but as the way they could expect Yahweh to keep saving them in the future. The Exodus became this big deal. And you know the story. He frees them from the land of Egypt. He brings them to the foot of a mountain. You guys remember the name of that mountain? What is it? No. Mount Sinai. Yes, Mount Sinai. Yep. And he invites these slaves that he just rescued. He invites them into this beautiful covenant relationship. He says, you'll be my special people. You're going to be a treasure to me. And I just rescued you on wings of eagles. It's just this most beautiful romantic language in Exodus 19. I just took you out on wings like eagles to be my own special possession, a kingdom of priests. There to become a nation, well, then within that, you get all these laws. You get these 613 laws. Why? The point, the, the, the point of these laws was to shape Israelite community to be a counterculture, or as one scholar puts it, a, a contrast community to all the other nations that are around them. They are in contrast to all the cultures around them. In other words, sp specifically, they are to become a nation with a different standard of generosity and justice that stands out. This is how they're to image God. We're back at Adam. God is saying, here's how you image God. You're to be generous. You're to show justice. They're, they're to be unique in how they care for the most vulnerable, vulnerable people in their midst. The poor, the fatherless, the widow, the immigrant. Scholars call it the Old Testament quartet. Those demographics God is specifically aware of and he's called his people to take care of them with righteousness and justice. And this is how we will image God on the earth. This is his plan. They will become a kingdom of priests. That is, they will become these mediators of God's character to the world. This is image bearing. It's going back to Genesis 1.26. That's what this is. They are to show what God is really I, and ideally, pulling human beings towards what kind of human he wants us to be. And the Israelites go on to fail. <laughs> if you, has anybody read the Old Testament? It is a vicious cycle of failure and betrayal and chronic disobedience and perpetual rebellion and on and on it goes. You know, their leaders, <clears throat> instead of using their power to give and build up society, their leaders use their power to take. Instead of using their power to protect and build up and flourish the Old Testament quartet, 
the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the immigrant. They'd use their power to leech off of them and take from them. And they bring Israel to the ground and all these foreign powers come in and take them over until, and the cycle goes on, it gets worse and worse. Then there's this king, but he's beautiful and he's also broken and what comes after him is all these broken kings and they all fall apart and finally these foreign powers come and, and rip their land apart, burn down their temple and take them off to Babylon and to exile again. 600 years of epic fail. And the prophets show up. You know, Jesus mentioned the prophets. Do not come, I don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. The prophets show up in, in the midst of this horrible stuff or after it, and they look back and they're just, they, they write these laments and griefs about how terrible it all is and just all these horrible things. And God is like a father whose children have run away. He's like a faithful husband whose wife is chronically sleeping around. He still loves her and he's trying, but she leaves and all of these things. But they also write about this future hope. I think I put it in there. This is the, I mean, this is, this is I think, the heartbeat of it. Is, is there Jeremiah up there? Do I have Jeremiah? Did I do that? Uh, 31, boom, there it is. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. I, it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant though I was a husband to them. Oh, I forgot to erase those things, declares the Lord. Go next. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel. After that time, listen, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Is there another one? No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. Okay, this has got to be one of the verses, this has got to be in Jesus' mind as he's saying that he's come to fulfill this because this is what he's come to fulfill. You notice the difference between the one covenant and the other. The first covenant was outward how you relate to other nations, your behaviors. Do this, but don't do this. And then do this, but don't do this. And do this, and don't do this. And do this, and don't do this. Jesus is coming. Not, he has no interest in starting another community that is known for their behaviors only. The Sermon on the Mount is so darn uncomfortable because he's getting at the foundation. Look what, uh, I'll read it again. He says, it will not be like the, the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out by the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put it, I will put my law, where does it say? In, 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 in here, in them. And I will write it. Instead of etching it on stone like I did in Mount Sinai, and delivering it, this external thing that I inscribed on stone and Moses delivered it to the people, I'm gonna now write it 
on your heart, on the, the foundation. It says that God will write the Torah on our hearts and minds. So at the end of, so here's what's so beautiful. At the end of a 600-year epic, horrible failure cycle, the God of Israel could just walk away from this covenant relationship. I don't think anyone would blame him. But the prophets show up and discern that that's exactly the opposite of what he's going to do. Instead, he's going to keep moving towards these rebellious people. Let that sink in, please. 600 years of outright rebellion. By the, t- and by the time you get to this, if you read the Old Testament straight through, by the time you get to this point in the story, you're done with the Israelites yourself. You're, you're feeling, you're, you're, don't you love when they talk back? You're feeling the Israelites, you're like, man, I'm done with these people. Just baptize it. Just pour your coffee. That's what I do. I just do that whole thing. (laughs) That's what, you know, that's what, um, you, you feel it in your heart. You're done with them. And yet, God goes further than what our hearts can do. He's actually going to do something different. He's going to move towards rebellious mankind. And he's not going to inscribe the laws on stone again and deliver them to modify people's behavior. He's going to fundamentally heal and transform the human condition. That's what he's saying. He's gonna fundamentally heal and transform the human condition. And this, my friends, is the vision of the Sermon on the Mount. He's not just going to say, this is Jesus, he's not like the scribes, do this and don't do this, do this but don't do this. That's not what he's gonna say. That would be, I mean, that's uncomfortable enough, but it's, it's worse and better. He's going to get under the surface. He's going to do it like what Richard did to me with his finger yesterday. He's going to get under the surface and he's going to address the deep issues of the heart and mind, the foundational stuff that's firing your behavior, that's motivating you to deceive and lie and be selfish and fib and minimize and exaggerate and all the things that we do. He's going to so fundamentally transform the human heart that you just by nature can discern God's will. And you know how to be human and you'll know how to relate to others and it just comes naturally. Can you imagine that? Being that innocent again. And Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount, yeah, that's what I'm here to do. That's what I'm gonna do. I'm here to bring that promise into reality. I'm gonna fulfill the story. So that's why the um, Sermon on the Mount is such a hard read because Jesus just keeps digging under and exposing. Let me, let me just give you some examples. Um, look at Matthew chapter five, verse 21. I, I don't know if I gave that to you or not. He says, um, let me just, <laughs> uh, I'm, I, I apologize in advance. You have heard that it was said to those of old, so here he's doing it again. You've heard this part, Right? You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. He's affirming that. He's saying, he's not, remember, he's not abolishing the law. He's saying, yeah, don't murder. I agree. 
That's the surface. Are you ready for the Richard Zinger? But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. What? Whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel. Okay, here we go. Whoever says you fool will be liable to hell. I'm a red letter Christian. I just love the words of Jesus. Really? Really? I'm very uncomfortable right now. I'm very, very, very uncomfortable right now. Some of your translations say, um, raka, for you fool. It's an Aramaic word. It means empty, empty one. In other words, you're a nothing. That's what that means. You're nothing. So Jesus, so here's what Jesus is saying. Congratulations. You've never murdered anyone. Well done. Is that really, really? Is that where the bar is for humanity? It's great. I'm glad you haven't murdered anyone. But let's think about this. When you say to somebody, you're nothing, Well, what is murder? Murder is when I think that I am more important than someone else and that I have the right to snuff someone else out. That it's okay for me to do that. That I mean more than someone else. What happens when we say, in the car, someone cuts, you idiot. What am I saying? You fool. You empty one. You nothing. Jesus is saying, look, the surfacey stuff, I mean, great, you haven't murdered anybody, but let's get in there. Aren't you doing the same thing? There's something wrong with your foundation is cracked. In other words, um, in other words, in Jesus' mind, In the mind of Jesus, there is no difference between murder and slander. In Jesus' mind, there is zero difference between murder and slander. Okay, I'm, I'm, I mean, man, I'm feeling it. I just want to like, woo, this is why we don't like this part. He says a house that's built on that kind of foundation won't stand. That's what's tearing humanity apart. A house that's built on that low of a standard, that's why society's falling apart. That's why humans are falling apart. The winds come and blow on that kind of foundation, the house will fall and great will be that fall. Read the news. Just turn your phone on and read what's going on in the world Great is the fall. I matter more than you. I will invade. I will bomb. I will take. I will move in. I will occupy your space. Great will be the fall. 
As soon as I start thinking that I'm better than somebody else, all sorts of thoughts are justified and actions are justified. Look at World War II and the propaganda that was going out there that justified the acceptance of the extermination of certain demographics of people. How are we doing? I'll just give you one more because that's, I mean, Jesus talks to the men in the audience. He says, you have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Hey, congratulations. You haven't slept with someone else that's not your wife. But he keeps going. Here's the the zinger. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then look, the stakes are high. Look at this. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin like that, tear it out. The stakes are high in Jesus' opinion. And throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body being thrown into hell. How are we doing? I just love the words of Jesus. For it is better that you lose one of your members. I just said that. don't want to say it again. And if our right hand causes you to sin, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members that your whole body go into hell. What is he doing? He's getting at the, he's saying, look, um, in bed with her, not in bed with her. What's your foundation doing here? This is the Sermon on the Mount. You see what Jesus is doing? He's exposing the cracked foundation of humanity. He's getting under the law. The old covenant, which is great, it was the house outside. It was the behaviors. It was the don't murder. Don't commit adultery. It's the behavioral stuff. Jesus is getting in there and saying, but look, the foundation is cracked. That's what I've come to fix. That's what I've come to do. And my disciples, my followers, that's what they'll be working on. You want to come after me, Mike? Get used to being uncomfortable. Because that's what I'm going to be working on in you. Doing what, Jesus? Well, first of all, I'm going to expose the cracks going on in there, Mike. And it's it's not going to feel great. But then I'm going to move to heal and write my laws and my spirit on your heart. I'm going to make you a new human. Come follow me, Jesus says. Come follow me. The kingdom of God is at hand. Come follow me. And in case you were wondering about walking away from this, um, if you don't have this kind of a foundation, if you don't let me do the work that I've come to do, you will not be able to handle life. Great will be your fall because life is brutal. This is it. You, this, is, this, is, this, is the man of, this is what was on Jesus' mind. How does he fulfill it? Well, after 600 years of failure, God had still not given up on his rebellious people. Look, Jeremiah says that he will forgive them. I will put my law on your hearts. In fact, let me read it again to you. Um, He says, Behold, the days come, declare the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. 
Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, you could insert in there over and over and over and over again ad nauseum. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God. They will be my people. No longer shall they say to teach his neighbor and his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Why? Because I will forgive their perpetual failures. And I will remember their sins no more. How does Jesus fulfill this? Well, he's come to forgive. Here's the message. Let me just give you a clear message. You're messed up from the inside out. Every man, of us, every man woman of us here, we've got cracks in our foundation. We are perpetually violating the spirit of the law. In fact, with our motives so skewed, sometimes we do the outward behaviors for, the sin, for sinful reasons, to make ourselves feel superior, to look down on others, to justify our other things. Even when we do right things with a bad foundation, we're doing them for wrong motives. We've all got that going on in here. And Jesus is saying, come follow me, and I'm gonna fix that. I'm gonna start by saying, I forgive you. Here's the the thing. This is why I don't like the Sermon on the Mount. It's like God says to me, Mike, hold my hand, and I'm gonna I'm gonna take you deep into the recesses of your heart, and you and I are gonna stare the most ugly things of your humanity in the face. But don't worry, I'm gonna hold your hand the whole time. I'll be here for you. But we gotta go, we gotta go face those things. Let's go down to the basement, let's get it done. And he takes us down, and we look at it, and we, we think, and what do we do? I, well, this is what I do. I tried to pull my hand away, because I think, I like, I like Peter. I say, depart from me. I'm an unworthy man. Remember when it hit Peter? He, hit, he got on his knees and said, get away from me, Lord. I'm not, I don't, I don't belong with a guy like you. And to our astonishment, he takes our hand and says, I've come to forgive you. I'm not leaving, I'm coming towards you. I'm not repelled from you. I'm coming towards you. Even though maybe you've got 600 years of failure under your belt and perpetual rebellion and ongoing disobedience, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. I love you just the way you are, Jesus says, as he holds your hand, but I also will love you enough not to let you stay that way. So let's walk through. And this is, you guys, this is what it means to flourish. This is what it means to follow Jesus. This is what's in our future if we sign up for this. Jesus is the fulfillment of what this whole story has been pointing to. And Jesus comes as the kind of human that we're made to be. He's the ultimate human, isn't he? That's what's so important. He comes, he's the, ultimate, he's the ultimate human that you and I were made to be and that we failed to be. He is that. And he actually is the Torah embodied in human flesh. He is the love of God as a human being and the embodied love of God. And how did Jesus treat his enemies and the people that hated him? 
He gave his life for them. And what he calls us to do as his followers is to be in this space, in this house that we call a church, a community, to so soak in this story that it begins its slow work of changing our very DNA. We soak in the story. This is why we do the Bible every Sunday. We soak ourselves in the story, and hopefully you're reading at home on your own, so that our souls, little by little, from glory to glory, we are becoming this contrast community, this new kind of human that images God wherever we go, more and more every day, that brings him glory, that's able to say, let us make let there be. So what does the, the th- road to flourishing look like here at our church? Well, that this church, that Calvary Wallingford, would be a place that we can eventually, and I say that because I know it takes time, that we can eventually be honest about what's really going on beneath the surface of our lives with each other. And we can allow Jesus' love to go about its slow work on us from glory to glory into the image of God and that we would be surrounded with committed people that say, like Jesus, hold our hands and say, I'll never let you go. That we would be practicing the way of Jesus together. We'll be exploring the life rhythms of Jesus later in the year and, that we, and when we do this, the storms are going to come. Hear me say it, but we'll stand. We'll stand Some of you are here and the storms have come and you're standing. And through the suffering, and we'll hear from you throughout the year, there's actually quite a bunch of people in here that are or have been suffering and some of them will tell you that the suffering, not only did they stand through it because of Jesus, but Jesus also used it to reveal things that still needed work and to keep sanctifying from glory to glory. That's what it looks like to flourish. That's what this community will seek to house and seek to contribute to with grace. It's convicting, it's uncomfortable. This is the way of our master.